0: Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online, WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world. And on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song. WalterParks.com if you'd like to hear more of Walter's good music. And if you'd like to reach out to me, jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E, jamesnave.com. I would love to hear from you. Send me a, a story. What, what's up with you and on your side of the fence in your part of the world? And if you would ever like to join me and my collaborative creative partner, Allegra Houston on a Saturday morning and write with us for an hour, we would love to have you. The door is always open. We call our morning session on Saturdays the imaginative storm writing prompt of the week gathering and we do gather at noon actually eastern time 10 o'clock mountain time which is where i often am and you can figure the other time zones out around the world ImaginativeStorm.com, if you'd like to join us and write for an hour or so And, and you can also read your work as well we'd love to we'd love to do this and we laugh a lot and sometimes there's Tell a few jokes and and it's a it's a wonderful time getting together, imaginativestorm.com. And today my guest is my good friend Alan Wolf. Alan and I have known each other since the 80s when we were both involved in an organization based out of Asheville called Poetry Alive. I was one of the founding members of Poetry Alive, and we spent many, many, many days, many months, many hours, even many years traveling around the country performing poetry for school students. And Alan Wolf and I often would go out on the road and drive around the country. I don't know how many thousands upon thousands of miles we put on the wheels. We certainly did a lot. Alan has gone on from that to become one of America's top young adult authors. His press is Candle Wick Press, and he's been with that press for many, many years. He has a number of books to his credit. I'll let him tell us how many. And he's also involved in all kinds of creative work. He makes his living as a creative, and he's spending a little time with us today. So, Alan Wolf, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio.
1: Nave, it is an honor and a pleasure to be here. I wish that your listening audience could see your beautiful face the way that I can on zoom right now.
0: Well, I, I send that right back to you. Both you and I are are looking at each other. You're in Asheville and I'm in Taos. So Al and I call you Al. And although your name is Alan Wolf, but we've known each other a long time. So we have, we have some familiarity with names Yes, Uh, and I Have always loved your work, and I remember when you and I were riding around the country all those years ago. We used to talk about greatness, and we talked about what it meant to make art and commitment and how one stayed with it. And I recall driving down the road with you. It might have been on I eighty one going north up to Natick, Massachusetts. I don't know. (laughs) Um, You you said I am going to become a children's author i know how to do this i'm planning on doing it and shell silverstein you better look out and did i say that you surely did and i and you know what my friend i believe that was hubris but in some ways as it turned out you have made lots of lots of wonderful contributions to the to the canon of children's literature young adult literature so why don't we start with the idea of greatness and move from there?
1: How do you start off at greatness and where do you go from, from there? That's, that's not a bad place to start, really. I remember when we were talking about greatness, I'm a big fan of John Keats, the English romantic poet, romantic school of poetry. And he would speak about greatness in his, through his letters And we would talk about greatness with a capital G greatness and how greatness was something that was transcendent. Greatness was found not just in famous literature and famous poets and artists, but greatness was also found in common everyday ordinary moments and people. We would meet I remember on the road when we were traveling, we would meet wait staff and janitors that were just oozing greatness. It's a way of looking at the world and it's a way of transforming what poets do is they transform the ordinary into the extraordinary. And that's what I started getting to think that, you know, it's not even so much about poets as much as it is about people who see the world through a poet's eyes and they maybe don't even know how to read or write or they don't have time for that hoity-toity poetry and yet they are more full of greatness than a lot of the poets that are trying to write great poetry.
0: It occurs to me that greatness may be something that we do not have to achieve in the same sense that we do not have to achieve perfection. Perfection is already with us. The universe is perfect because it works in accord with how it's always been working and always will work. And greatness may also be part of that same proposition. It's a great universe we live in, and our job may be just simply to Uh, Appreciate it. And I don't know if we concluded that when we were driving around the road, but I believe that's where I've
1: finally arrived. Well, to me, I think you've hit the nail on the head that we're now talking 30 years later. And back then, I remember feeling greatness when we would talk about it. I, I would get chills and I would get excited and I would feel greatness sort of breathing. In you know, taking up space in the room with us when we would talk about it and listen to people reciting their poems and audiences getting excited and kids getting excited about words and you could feel the great it was palpable in the air and when I started explaining it to kids what poets do I would always use that poets transform the ordinary into the extraordinary the older I grew and the, you know, the more I wrote and the more I looked at the ordinary things in the world, I realized that this is all a process that we go through and that the end of the process shows us that the ordinary is already extraordinary. And it is not the poet who breathes the extraordinariness into it the poet just notices it. And maybe that's the final thing that you learn on your deathbed is that simply to be a poet is to notice. We are part of that greatness. And it is the awareness that we are here. We have done won the lottery. This is a freaking miracle that the two of us are talking here on on Zoom, you're in Taos, New Mexico, I'm in Asheville, North Carolina, thousands of miles away. We've known each other for 30 years and here we are talking to each other about things we've been doing and thinking and we are not rocks. I mean, we are, we're made of molecules, we're made of the stuff that was already here on the planet. There's nothing alien about it. Everything that makes us what we are we are part of the world. And when we die, we're going to stay right here. Our molecules are not going anywhere. They're going to stay right here where they started. We're all generating from this one particular place. And I think the thing about being a poet and enlightenment and transcendence is that we are aware of it, that we notice it. And that's why it is a gift to be us we understand how cool it is to be here. And that's the gift, I think, of greatness and poetry that, even when life sucks, it is just a miracle that we even had a shot at it at all. We know we had a shot at it, that we know, we are aware of it. When we were talking back in the early 80s, and the early 90s, We were talking about greatness. I knew that it was more than being a famous rich individual or a brilliant artist. I knew there was kind of more connectedness to it, but I really didn't get it the way I get it now. I'm not as loud. I don't worry about trying to have the perfect words for anything anymore. I more just listen as I'm getting older.
0: In the work that you've done since you and I were driving up and down the interstate talking about greatness, and we talked about lots and lots of things, and I remember you would recite John Keats and talk about how wonderful it was, and indeed, John Keats endures and is worthy of of often quoting. When we were driving up and down the interstate and talking about that, I had A little idea of what it was, but as you point out, 30 years later, we both have evolved in our thinking. Now you have stayed with it in respect to the educational approach to the work that you do. You became an author. You have written many books. I'd love for you to give our listeners an overview of some of the contributions that you have made and how those contributions have followed you into the classroom and how you use those contributions to still to this day, teach students.
1: I think I can actually segue from what we were just talking about. For the people listening out there, part of what brought me to writing poetry for young people was the job that I had working with Jim Nabe as, as an actor for Poetry Alive. More than an actor, we would recite the poems. And the audience would listen and we'd get them up with us to act out the poems. So the words of the poem would tell them what to do. There's a whole world of directional notes within a poem. And so it was all very interactive. Once we got the kids involved, they wanted to be part of the poetic process. And I realized that, you know, there's more to poetry than just writing in academic journals for grownups and I could actually touch more people and get more feedback. If I wrote for these kids that are wide open and they don't know a palm from a pothole, they just know what they like, what strikes their fancy. That's an exciting audience to write for. Also, I realized that I can make more money if I write for kids especially because of that academic bridge. I can be an educational consultant and I can actually get paid money to do that. A book of poetry for kids becomes a kid's book. It's not just a poetry book. And poetry just does not sell that well. I'm sorry, people out there in radio land. That's how it is for most of us. I was always interested in the world and the ordinary things For example, science, anatomy, what do you call the different parts of your body? And because, you know, I had to work six or seven days a week, I just took one day off and I went to the library. I chose a book that I could write in such a way that the process would dovetail with the rest of my work day, my work week. Poetry was perfect for that. And... a collection of poems about anatomy was perfect for that because each day I could take one body part and I could research it. This is before the internet. I could research it with the encyclopedias and I could write a poem about it and all of the facts were right there and the fiction was born from the facts, the poetry, the characters, everything about it. The atmosphere of the poem, the rhyme scheme of the poem, the feel of the poem, the characters that emerged from it all emerged from these scientific facts. That really turned me on because there it was, I could do my research, I could explore the ordinary world, and I could blow it up and make it extraordinary. I thought I was making it extraordinary, but now I realize I was just taking a magnifying glass and looking at it and showing how extraordinary it already was. And that was my first book, was a collection of anatomy poems called The Blood-Hungry Spleen. And because uh, through my work with Poetry Alive, I already knew so many artists and poets and publishers, it was very easy for me to send my work to a friend of mine, Paul Fleischmann, He was a Newberry winner back in 91 or 92, and he just sent that manuscript on to an editor friend of his, and one thing led to another, and that's how I ended up getting published. It was really that marriage of science and poetry for me. That was my door. And I thought, this is all I want to do is write books of poems, collections that are thematically linked by the world of science. I figured that's my niche, that's what I want to do. Thing As one thing leads to another, you realize, oh, there's more than science, there's history too. There's things that happen in, in history, and I can use poetry in order to show how those, that ordinary things that were actually extraordinary in history. And then I began to realize, well, I can take extraordinary things in history, like the Lewis and Clark expedition, And I can show them how ordinary those extraordinary things were and so it works both ways it's like a wormhole between normal everyday people and greatness. And that wormhole goes both ways poet can also take something like the Titanic sinking, which is an extraordinary thing and show ordinary people just how connected they are to it. So this was a beginning of me writing novels in verse. So they were written with line breaks, persona poems, characters, and I would become through my poems the different characters. It's an approach I've been taking for years embodying these people that really lived, like Lewis and Clark, or people that were aboard the Titanic. Uh, I just wrote a historical novel about the Donner party. So I was able to become a pioneer in the 1840s, things like that where I crawl into those extraordinary characters, the extraordinary circumstances, but I can show an ordinary person how connected they are to it. I've written poems, collections of poems for kids about space. I've got one coming out about mindfulness and meditation. That I'm working on right now. I've started writing picture books because a lot of times my longer poems will have a narrative thread, and so they'll make for a good picture book. So each book has led me to some other genre in children's literature to the point where I now I'm writing uh, picture books. I'm writing collections of poems for kids. I'm writing novels in verse. And I'm presently working on a graphic novel where I'm taking a story, a prose story, a historical, this is a factual story about a lake that disappears in Southern Louisiana. And now we're going to transform that into a graphic novel. This has led me to so many different facets of writing. I never would have anticipated it beginning with our car rides in these old beat-up Nissan's in 1989, 1990, stopping at the side of the road and just loving it, just inhaling it all. By now, I've written about 20 books, so I'm wildly successful in some ways. I'm not wildly rich, but I've sent my three kids through college and I'm doing okay. I still cannot make a living Solely off my writing. I have to continue to write and I have to continue to present. It's more like a whole lifestyle. I'm immersed in the whole thing. To be quite honest, like in the last year and a half with COVID and the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter movement, I've been sort of sitting back and I've just been listening to the world and sort of waiting to know what to do. And so even at this point in my career. I'm trying to write and become harder to write. I'm working on a novel and it's just been very hard. This is not just flowing out of me because I have to stop and I have to listen. The world is changing and I'm changing and, you know, there's this poem. I don't have this memorized, but I have it in front of me because I have it posted at my desk. It's by Wendell Berry and it's uh, it's called Our Real Work. Uh, I'm going to read this and then I'd love for you to Give me your take on it, Navi. Um, but just so your readers know, there's like, I've written a bazillion books, for kids. I'm what you would call a successful writer. I'm not a terribly famous writer, perhaps, but this is what I do. It's my living. And I've been doing this for 30 years now, just immersed in all of this. I'm not competent to do anything else. So I'll be an old man, you know, on the street writing my poems. But this is called Our Real Work by Wendell Berry. And it really sort of speaks to what I've been going through this past year and a half or two almost now, because I hit a wall and I'm trying to figure it out. And it goes like this. It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work and that when we no longer know which way to go, we have come to our real journey, the mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. And I'm trying to use those words to have faith in the process of writing. I have often said that writing is an act of faith and now my faith is being tested because I have to sit down at my little desk right here and I have to just write and I can no longer write from the outside in. I have to write from the inside out, because I'm nearing 60, and I've hit a wall. We've all hit a wall here since COVID hit. Things have changed. since so 9-11, and then COVID. 9-11 was 20 years ago, but things started changing about right then, I think, the whole world. It's sort of an exciting time, because I think some interesting, magical things are going to come of my sitting back and listening. My stream is impeded. My usual way of life, the way of thinking has been impeded. And rather than me getting all stressed out about that and worrying over it, as a poet, now my job is to transform worry into wonder instead of worrying about, oh, I can't do this, or I can't do this, or things have changed, it's the same feeling, that feeling of anxiety, you feel it in your body physically, it's the same feeling. Wonder and worry are the same feeling. And so what I wanna do is as a poet, I wanna define worry now as wonder. I wanna give it that label because wonder carries with it so much more positivity, uh, for something good happening in the future out of it i wonder what's going to happen something's going to happen
0: i'm telling you so i'm telling you this morning i saw yeah, ice in the, ice bucket. In the bucket. <laughs> something's going to happen yeah. and you, you can't, can't duck, duck it, duck it. <laughs> the way the wind blows is the way the dead leaves go something's, something's going to happen. happen and i'm telling you so <laughs> well, that's a sort of a rough version of robert penn robert warren's ben point <laughs> yeah. something's going to happen well you know al I love this idea of the stream being impeded. And when you were saying that at first, I thought, wow, the stream sings when it's impeded. And then you said it again and again, and then I realized the water does not know the stream is impeded, nor does the water care. The water has no opposition because the water will go wherever it pleases. And it just simply avoids the rocks or goes over them or under them, around them, or whatever it does. So in a sense, what impedes the stream has very little to do with what actually makes the stream, the stream.
1: Exactly. Yes. You know, how do we even define stream? Is a stream water or is it the banks that define the stream? Or is it them all together because the water pushes on the banks, the stream, and keeps them where they are. When the stream goes away and it dries up, let's say it's an intermittent stream, is it still a stream when it's not there, when there's no water in it?
0: What impedes the stream would be, of course, the things that are stable, that are steady like the rock or the pile of dirt, or whatever happens to be in the stream. Perhaps somebody tosses an old object, an old chair in the stream, and then suddenly it becomes what is impeding the water. If you wanted to shift that a little bit, and instead of saying the stream is impeded because the water is in the stream, if you moved it to a trail, and then the tree fell over in the trail, and you are the entity moving down the trail, you are the movement the trail is impeded so how then do you figure out as a human being how do you get over the tree in the trail the water has no crisis it will just simply go the human however has to go like my gosh that tree is too tall to climb or i can't get over it or maybe i'll slip and fall a thousand feet Really interesting to think about how do we identify ourselves? What do we identify ourselves with? Are, are we water? Are, are we some kind of animal that could just hop right over? And the deer would just hop over the tree and go on. So, how are we, what kind of choices creatively will we make in terms of the way we see ourselves?
1: I was just hiking this morning with my sister and a friend of mine, Michael, with us. We had three dogs and two puppies. And my sister had her puppy, uh, big puppy. But we ca- we came to a point. You know, we'd had all these floods and stuff here recently, and it was two very large trees that were they were so big you could tell that the maintenance people didn't have a chainsaw big enough to cut them, so they just left them there. There, we were on this very nice, beautiful hike, you know, Shope's Creek here near Asheville, down Riceville Road. We came to a dead stop. Because we had this puppy with us, and the puppy could not figure out how am I going to get over that tree? And my sister and I were right there. And suddenly, our little trip became something completely different because the two of us had to get over the tree too, which is not that easy. We had to, you know, physically grunt ourselves over this tree. And the dog, the city dog, we had to show the dog how to leap over this tree. And suddenly, our stream was impeded. We were the water. We were aware of the impediment the impediment, we were aware of it in a way that water is not aware. I I don't really know how to reconcile those two things because we are like water moving through the world, but we're not like water because we overthink everything. John Keats would also talk about negative capability where the, the water would just flow And it would just flow the easiest possible way. And like you said, it would not worry. It would not worry a bit. It would not wonder either, of course. It would just wander. It would just flow. Negative capability, John Keats, was he meant to say that it just went with it. If you're an artist, you're basically just a mouthpiece for the energy of the world. You don't think about, well, is this going to look good? Does this rhyme? Am I going to be famous with this? You just let it flow. And that's what we all want to get to that point. That's what water does. But I do wonder, to get to that point, if we have to no longer be human, with a consciousness that will evaluate what's happening.
0: I don't know the answer to that question. I can say for myself, as a person that's been doing the creative work as long as you have, You and I have a very different approach to it. I'm not a professional writer, although I write all the time and I use it in my life, my work, in my poetry, in these radio shows. I am quite factuated with language and the way words emerge from us, a bit like the stream flowing down to the sea. And I've come to trust it's going to be okay. I will flow how I need to flow. And I've really stopped questioning if my stream is impeded or not. I figure, well, there's a rock. I'll go sit on it for a while. Maybe I don't have to do anything. Maybe it's time to relax. Maybe it's time to stop. Maybe that's just because I've had so many years of experience doing this. I know something's going to happen tomorrow. Back to the Robert Penn Warren poem. Something's going to happen. I tell you, I know, I tell you this morning, I saw ice in the bucket. Something's going to happen and you can't duck it. And that's quite true. So I don't have as much angst around it as I once did because I have a lot of evidence on my desk that something will happen. And the thing that I know that I think is the most important thing for me, it will happen if I... Choose to show up and wait for it to happen. And you said to listen, listen for it. Come listen for the rustling of the leaves somewhere in my imagination and then go from there and then do it again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And I suspect it has little to do with age, except maybe experience, knowing that all one has to do is wait for the rustling of the leaves and then respond to that simplicity to me, that's the key that helps me keep moving in my creative life. And I've witnessed you over the years. And what I see outside looking in, you do the same thing. You say you're a little blocked right now. I believe you, but I also suspect that after we get through talking and you go make a tea or a coffee, <laughs> you know, and noon comes or, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon comes, Alan Wolf won't be blocked anymore. He'll be out doing He's something fighting, and then you'll come back. Yeah, it's- yeah, exactly. So it's, it's going to keep flowing, which brings me around to, I know you do a lot of performance work for students with students and you, we, and you and I did that a lot. We taught the students how to, to do scripted poems like I'm nobody. Who are you?
1: Are you nobody too?
0: Then there's a pair of us.
1: Shh, don't tell. They banish us, you know. How dreary
0: to be somebody. How public. Like, like a, a frog. frog to tell one's name.
1: The live long day.
0: To an admiring bog. <laughs> that was Emily Dickinson's I know. I'm Nobody. So when Al and I were traveling, we would do all these little performance pieces. And we would script them and do little, and it's easy to do once you know the piece, you can just toss it back and forth. And, you know, even if it sounds goofy, it's okay. The The first graders love goofiness. So we did a lot of goofiness back in the day, but you have some pieces now that you're working on and you invited me to help you read one or two. So I would love to take you up on that and, and see what happens.
1: I'm going to screen share with you this poem. It's called Shooting Stars. It's from a collection of poems called The Day the Universe Exploded My Head, Palms to Take You Into Space and Back Again. We're going to do two voices. The listeners will hear us being the shooting stars. And they'll also learn some things because I want to share my research through my poems. So that it's not uh, overly pedantic, but that it actually has some facts and what they'll realize is that shooting stars are not stars at all. Shooting stars are a phenomenon that's created by debris that is in space already. And the planet Earth, which is traveling around the sun, travels through this debris that's floating in space because comets, which are made up of ice and rock and sand, they come towards the sun, they begin to melt, and so they melt and they leave a debris trail behind them, the matter that's left over, the rocks and the sand. And so it sits there in space, waiting for the planet Earth to run right through it. And that's why we know exactly in every August that the Perseid meteor showers are going to happen because that's the time of year that the earth travels through that area of space. Most people don't know that. They think it's a star that's falling from the sky. The truth is just a piece of dust skipping across the atmosphere. That piece of dust was left there thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago by some object that came through at some point. And so Navi and I are going to actually become the shooting stars. So as I recall Navi, I'm going to read the blue and the green and you'll read the red and the black. So these are color coded and it's got this sort of romping rhythm to it. It goes da 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 da. Let's see what happens. It's called Shooting Stars, Perseid Meteor Shower by Alan Wolfe. Here we go. We're here. We're there. We're there. We're here. We've waited many lonely years.
0: Our Our time. time. Okay. Oh, no, let's try it
1: again. (laughs) Let's start over. Let's just throw it back and forth.
0: I think that'll work better because I'm trying to keep up with the blue green. Okay. Here, let's Let's try it again. Yeah.
1: Let's just read this old school. Shooting Stars, Perseid Meteor Shower, by Alan Wolfe. We're here.
0: We're there.
1: We've waited many lonely years.
0: Our time to shine is finally here.
1: We're shooting.
0: Shooting stars.
1: We're there.
0: We're here.
1: Each summer, when the earth draws near,
0: all eyes look up, the evening's clear.
1: We skip across the atmosphere.
0: We're shooting stars.
1: Shooting stars
0: we're children of the comet's tail left lingering in mother's trail lone lumps of rock spare specks of dust
1: miraculous
0: mysterious
1: now wish a secret wish on us
0: we're shooting shooting shooting
1: shooting 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 shooting, stars and that's it (laughs) (laughs)
0: that's really wonderful man and and i love that you and i attempted to do this and one of the things i like to do on this show is to talk about the creative process which we have thoroughly been doing and i also like to demonstrate the creative process and we just did that you just dropped this on me and we were supposed to go nave you be you be red and black and I'll be blue and green. And I'm like, well, am I red? Am I black? And I blue? Am I green? And we come back to the flow of the, of the stream because we were just playing and the playing is a little clumsy. We weren't quite sure what to do and it's fun and funny. And I think when we're doing creative work, the best measure of success when we're doing creative work is if we are kind of laughing at ourselves while we're doing it. And you have your head buried in your hand going, oh God, did I actually say that? So to me, that childlike excitement that emerges when we attempt to do something like this or when we actually do it is the whole essence of why it's a wonderful thing to attempt to do. Because there's something about that delight that happens when you engage the creative process that I believe matches the energetic essence of the universe because it's a delightful place. Even though it's mad in some ways, the volcanoes explode and the earthquakes come and all of the weather patterns do all sorts of things that we call destructive. But again, you ask the volcano, are you a destructive entity? The volcano would say, no, I'm just doing what I always do. Same thing with the fires, same thing with the weather patterns. And we are the ones who are interpreting all of that.
1: Yes, yes. Yeah, I, and I like how you talk about destructive volcano is destructive. Um, human beings, in their own way, are destructive because they are deconstructive. They see nature or they see art and they deconstruct it. What's there in front of them? The stream. Impede it or not, it just flows. Humans are different because we want to know what the water is made out of, fast does it flow? We want to know the facts. We want to know quantifiable facts about this, this world. And in a way, we're able to decode the mysteries because we can deconstruct all the parts and we can see how it's put together. We can see how maybe we can actually reconstruct it in our own way. We do this with language. Reading is not something we're born to do. It's not natural for humans to read, to take words on a page and to deconstruct the words and to put them back together into language that that marks that are on a page. We learn language by listening to it but as far as reading it and writing it this is only something that we have done as a species in a little drop of time there's no part of our brain that is wired to do that it's completely unnatural we have to take these different parts and that's why humans deconstruct the sounds that we make these vocalizations we can we've deconstructed to create written language and language just in general we assign words to certain things that is a very human thing we deconstruct that in itself is sort of a destructive thing we break it apart and what keith is talking about greatness and this negative capability you know maybe humans aren't capable of doing it because they are so analytical and they are so deconstructive. Maybe there's no hope for us to be the water. Like you and I playing with that poem, it was so much more natural for us to listen to the natural rhythm of it, to look each other in the eye and listen for the cues that we were giving each other as far as the rhythm when you would start and stop, and we would actually breathe with it it became more of a natural thing to us. And I think that was a, that's a beautiful moment when you can write and create and it comes out naturally. And these are contraries because writing something down is in a way the most unnatural act that we can do. And yet we have to embrace the contraries of these two things. Maybe that's what poets or philosophers or spiritual people do is that they somehow embrace these contraries, which means you're dancing, you're dancing with two things that conflict. A simile is just like that. There's two things that somehow they connect, but they're very different, They're very different. That's the whole simile is different things given a similarity is a simile.
0: And I'm thinking the stream may not need to deconstruct itself because the stream already understands itself. We are the ones busy deconstructing everything because we don't understand it. And yet the migrating birds understand, the stream understands, the cycle of the seasons understands. Why deconstruct anything when I already know it, the stream might say. Whereas you and I are standing there going like, gee, let's code this poem blue and green and red and black, and then we'll follow the blue and green, and red and black, and and we will say the poem. And then, at least I collapsed on myself <laughs> trying to go red and black. I don't care about red and black. I just want to read this thing. If we can stay true to our listening inclinations and lean in the direction of the bubbling stream and listen to the stream singing its song as Wendell Berry says. The stream will always be singing, and the stream doesn't see anything in its way because it's water, and it's been there from the beginning. That's a remarkable thing when you think about it.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's it's natural. There's, there's no stress involved.
0: And we have a little bit of time before the top of the hour, maybe, as we move in that direction, I do also want to acknowledge for for those of you listening that Alan and Ginger West, his wife and Lee Lancaster and I were involved in the early days in Asheville creating the poetry slam movement there. And the poetry slam is as much about flow as all the stuff that we're talking about. And when we started that, proposition. Back in the days we were talking about greatness. We didn't understand greatness the way we understand it now. And yet in Asheville during those early days in the 1990s, we experienced an an emergence of things like streams flowing through. And so I just wanted to say thank you publicly for taking the leadership role in that time in Asheville in those early days. And I say that here because I've talked about it a lot with a lot of the poets and So it's good just to have you on and it's good to hear you talk about the work that you're doing because so much of what we did in those early days, including the readings at the green door in Asheville, on Carolina Lane, you reading your work there, me reading mine, that set the stage for our careers, our lives as poets, explorers, people who... Just love being in the world. So I just want to say thanks for for that.
1: It was my pleasure. And I think maybe my calling. One thing leads to another. and You find yourself in a situation. Yeah, I was in a situation because I made certain choices through literature and spoken word and poetry and performance and putting on presentations and working in venues and putting on shows, all of that theater and literature combined, so I've had that interest and so that kind of led me to be hanging out in that milieu or that society of people, but I think that's how it works is like the water, it's sometimes a matter of avoiding the things that you don't want to do, gravitating towards the things you do want to do, because we don't really know what it is we want to do until we get there writers write their way towards what they need to, to write. And I know in those moments back at the green door, when we were all introduced to the concept of performing and storytelling, combined those things with poetry. And that's a big deal because we weren't just telling stories, we were writing poems and memorizing them and reciting them. And there's an immediacy from the heart to the audience. So there was an audience and there was a recitation. We had written things down and we had memorized it. So we'd spent time with those words, almost like being in church. And to me, the green door was church. And none of us really knew that that was going to happen. I felt more like a deacon pastor of a church and we all got up and we did our altar call and we all preached our, our own gospel. It was that atmosphere and making it into that drama. It was a ritual, we ritualized it.
0: And I remember at Christmas time, you would wrap yourself in Christmas lights and recite was <laughs> the night before Christmas and all through the house,
1: not yeah. a creature
0: was stirring, yeah. not even a mouse.
1: You know, for, for me, always thinking in terms of humor, I, I understand that people need a little bit of aha along with their ha-ha. In order to feel like you've really been moved, you can't just laugh. Laughter makes life bearable, but the sadness makes it rich. For me to get up as the deacon preacher going from one part of the service to the next rather than somebody who's giving a sermon up there necessarily, putting humor into it. It had to be entertaining because I was not proselytizing to tell somebody that they had to think a certain way. They just had to think. My job was to make people feel comfortable.
0: You certainly did that. And then you coined a phrase that's still to this day used all over the country about, how poetry can't be judged by the points. What was that phrase you wrote?
1: It was exactly, and I quote myself, the points are not the point, the point is poetry.
0: The points are not the point, the point is poetry. And people still to this day, I hear people use that phrase, that's stuck. It's been around the poetry slam for all these years. Al, as we close, tell people how they can find out more about your work and how they can reach you.
1: Well, I would love to hear from anybody out there. I'm just at alanwolf.com and that's A-L-L-A-N-W-O-L-F. It's Alan like Edgar Allan Poe and Wolf like the animal. alanwolf.com and that's the easiest way to reach me or you can Google me. I discovered two weeks ago. I am actually on Wikipedia now. Somebody has actually written an Alan Wolf entry on Wikipedia. So I figure I've really made it now.
0: Well, you know, I discovered you have to have all kinds of public references that are unrelated to you personally before you can get on Wikipedia. Appearances, books, things that people talk about. In the the culture. So you can't go on Wikipedia and just write about what you've done because you've done it. It has to be broader than that. So yes, congratulations. You now have made it. So Al, thanks ever so much for being with with us on Twice Five Miles Radio. I do appreciate it.
1: You're welcome, Navi. And I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you as a friend and also to talk to people that I don't even know out there.
0: Well, I appreciate it too, and I I'll, maybe we'll do it again sometime soon.
1: I would love that. I'll, I'll look forward to that. Maybe we'll figure out even more things by then.
0: I will plan on it. And there you go, my friends, a conversation with Alan Wolf. And since we have a few minutes before the top of the hour, I thought I would take this time to talk a bit about Alan's approach to generating novels in verse, and what I would like to lift up is how Allen has great mastery around what writers call the geography of the page. In Allen's book about the sinking of the Titanic, titled The Watch That Ends the Night, he creates poetic forms for each character in the book which has 466 pages. Most poetry books you read have 100 pages at most. Since Allen is writing a novel using verse form, he's experimenting with poetry in many different ways than what you would read if you read a traditional poetry book. And one of the things he does regarding geography on the page, he uses different forms of poetry to illustrate each character. Some of the characters would be say for example the shipbuilder Thomas Andrews or the millionaire John Jacob Astor. Some of Allen's characters are made-up characters and others like John Jacob Astor were on the boat and went down with the boat. Allen also includes a rat as a character plus he offers the iceberg as a character, and both the rat and the iceberg have speaking parts. Actually, more than speaking parts, they're narrators. They tell us the story from their point of view. So not only does he have the posh millionaire riding in first class, he has the rat running around amongst the food stuff in the hull, and he has the iceberg floating on the sea. So, the book opens with the first speaker, the ship rat, because the rat is looking for food and the rat is hungry, the page that opens the novel is rather sparse, a bit like the scraps of food a rat might find in a well-organized pantry, or in the... Ships Hull. When you look at the opening page, all you see is a lot of white space, save for six small lines the rat speaks. The rat says, follow the food, follow the rats, shuttle, shuttle, follow the rats, shuttle, shuttle, follow the food and from the first page on, the rat makes its appearance throughout the ship, trying to find food, also narrating what it sees. The iceberg, of course, is not on the ship, as we all know. The iceberg is floating in the sea, and Alan gives the iceberg a voice as well. And why wouldn't Alan give the iceberg a voice, since it, after all, was the reason why the Titanic sank. So three pages later, after Bruce Ismay, the businessman, speaks, E.J. Smith, the captain, speaks, and Thomas Andrews, the shipbuilder, speaks, the iceberg speaks. I am the ice. I see tides ebb and flow. I've watched civilizations come and go, give birth, destroy, restore, be gone, begin. The iceberg's geography on the page is blank verse and it covers the entire page so the iceberg begins with a fairly long speech and then we move on throughout the novel now when you read this book you'll notice that each time the iceberg speaks the lines get shorter and shorter the geography of the page tells us that the iceberg may well be melting not very fast yet losing a little ice every time it speaks And of course, we all know the Titanic hit the iceberg and sank. The way Alan demonstrates that in his book, when the shipbuilder who is on the boat realizes the boat is sinking, and yet he's trying to do what he can to save it, the lines the shipbuilder speaks start to tilt like a sinking boat. The shipbuilder speaks. Imagine the tilting lines. I'm not ready. Too many details, too many little matters left to fix. Helen, Elizabeth, the tilt of the floor must fix. The broken glass, I'll call the staff. The passengers are not comfortable. The leather chairs are tipping. Fix it, fix it. Everything is falling. The bees have nowhere to go. And of course, the Titanic does go down, and many are lost. And as the novel continues, Alan plays around with the many geographic opportunities he has on the page to illustrate to us, the readers, the emotional aspects of the tragedy. And as the story continues to unfold, the iceberg continues to speak, and so does the rat. And as the iceberg continues to speak, each time it speaks, as I said, the lines get shorter. There's a reason for this. I'll let you read the book to figure out what that reason is, but it's a masterful way of creating a narrative art from the iceberg's point of view. So again, Alan's book is titled The Watch That Ends the Night, Voices from the Titanic. If you would like a wonderful wintertime read, I recommend The Watch That Ends the Night. And this brings us to the end of this week's show. I I do appreciate you listening and I hope you've gotten a better sense of what geography of the page is all about from a poetic point of view. You too can create geography on the page. Try to capture some of your emotional tones, almost mapping out your emotional atmosphere on the blank piece of paper. Maybe you put one line in the middle or one line at the top or one line at the bottom. Who knows? It's up to you. But for now, I'll say thank you ever so much for tuning in and listening to Twice Five Miles Radio. Fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVM LP Asheville 103.7. Thanks, Walter Parks, for your theme song, WalterParks.com. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVM FM. We couldn't do all this without you. Thank you ever so much. If you'd like to reach out to me, JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N A V E. I would love to have you... Join us on our Saturday morning Imaginative Storm Writer Sessions. We gather every Saturday at 10 a.m. Mountain Time, Noon, Eastern Time, ImaginativeStorm.com if you would like to tune in. The door is always open. We'd love to have you. It's good fun. It's only last an hour, and you'll write something that maybe you can create some geography on the page with. Who knows? So thank you again so much for tuning in. I really do appreciate it, and I hope you do tune in again next time, and until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.